everyone. This is Damian O'Connell with the Warfighting Society. Welcome to the seventh episode of our new podcast, Controversy and Clarity, where we aim to generate critical discussion, challenge ideas that need challenging, and share with you the insights and ideas of our guests. For our guest today, we are very happy to host our good friend, Mr. Stuart Britton. Stuart is an American translator and editor of Russian military history books, particularly books written by veterans and historians of the Great Patriotic War, or what the Russians call the Soviet Union struggle against Nazi Germany during the Second World War. Stuart earned a Bachelor of Arts in Russian Studies from Southern Methodist University in 1980, and in 1982, he earned a Master of Arts from Georgetown University, also in Russian Studies. Since 2006, Stuart has been a freelance translator of Russian military history books and articles. In addition to translation, his work requires considerable editing of texts, and he's responsible for translating numerous operational studies, battle histories, and war memoirs. By my count, Stuart has translated or edited over 20 works of Russian military history, uh, which has to be some kind of record for an Anglo-American author, and I think puts him up there with the famous uh, Colonel David Clance. Uh, some of Stuart's recently translated or edited works include, I'm going to try not to butcher these too badly, uh, Boris Kabalirchik's The Tanks of Operation Barbarossa, 1941, Igor Shvitskov's Confronting Case Blue, Bryansk Front's attempt to derail the German drive to the Caucasus, July 1942. <clears throat> Excuse me. Valery Zemulin, The Forgotten Battle of the Kursk Salient, 7th Guards Army's Stand Against Army Detachment Kempf, and last but not least, and stepping outside of the, the Great Patriotic War, Boris Magorsky's Peter the Great's Revenge, The Siege of Narva, 1704. <clears throat> Most recently... Stuart has been editing Igor Svitskov's latest book on the er opening week of Case Blue, Germany's 1942 Strategic uh, Summer Offensive in Southern Russia. This is the same offensive that involved, <clears throat> sorry, this is the same offensive that involved much of the same battle of Stalingrad. You can find all of Stuart's books on Amazon.com. We strongly encourage you to check them out. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I've been really excited to have you on. You're the first non-U.S. Marine we've had on the show, and uh, I think you've got such an interesting job and background. I think our, our listeners will really enjoy hearing about you and your work. So thank you for, for joining us. Well, I'm happy to join you. Thank you for inviting me. So, Stuart, to, to start things off, um, we'd like to learn a little more about your background. So you know, what first attracted you to studying Russia and, and that part of the world? Uh, I think, you know, I grew up uh, in the middle of the Cold War, and I kept hearing about Russians doing this and Russians doing that. And I started to wonder, who are these people? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I also was interested in chess, and I knew Russian players had dominated world chess for decades. And I thought, you know, once again, who are these people? So I wanted to find out more about them. Mm -hmm. And I see that you studied um you, know, you, you studied Russian subjects in school. Did you have a particular focus while you were in your program at, at Georgetown or um, you know, uh, your, both, your... Yeah, both programs at SMU, Southern Methodist University, and at Georgetown University were air, uh, Russian area studies programs. Mm -hmm. And as such, you studied a variety of topics about Russia and the Soviet Union. You studied uh, Russian uh, history. You studied Russian culture, the language, of course. Uh, Soviet economics, central, you know, centralized planning, mm -hmm. and uh, Soviet politics. Sure. And I think given my interest in history in general, 
I think it was only natural after learning Russian that I would find my way on a train to the Eastern Front, so to speak. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this it, it actually segues, segues into my next question. So I assume growing up you were you were into history, you were in, into military history, if, if, if so. Um, you know, what genres, battles, campaigns, or, or wars, uh, you know, fascin- fascinated you most growing up? Well, growing up, um, I was from a very early age interested in military history. I, and I think I got that from my mother, who has a master's degree in history. Mm-hmm. I noticed we always had a few history books in our library, family library. Mm-hmm. And when I was a little kid, I watched combat and rat patrol episodes. Oh, yeah, okay. And once I re- reached an age of self-awareness, I wondered why my name was Stuart Lee Britton. So mm. that led me, you know, I asked my mother, why is my name Stuart Lee? And she told me, your name for Jeb Stuart and Robert E. Lee. Okay, and yeah. <laughs> so that, you know, that made me wonder who were these guys. And she told me that they were famous generals in the Civil War. And uh, when I started researching him, I think I checked a book. My first book out of the library was a a primer on Robert E. Lee written for children. Mm -hmm. I think I was initially horrified to find out that they were Confederates. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Is your family from the South? Uh, My mother's side uh, was primarily Unionist. They lived in uh, eastern Tennessee, which never was really part of the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. And there were strong unionist sympathies in eastern Tennessee, although she did have uh, three ancestors who signed up with the very first Confederate Tennessee regiments. Wow. So they, they were a split family like so many were during the Civil War. Sure. My dad's family came from northern Georgia and Alabama, so they were almost solely Confederate and served in the Confederate Army, as mm-hmm. I later found out. Well, yeah, if you um, ever needed a, a reason to get into military history being named after, um, you know, these, these two Southern generals is a good reason. Yes, it is. Yeah. I think it's inevitable. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know, Which... so for, a while, for a while I just devoured military military books on the Civil War. Sure. Um, I read, you know, all of them, Ree, uh, Robert Crick, uh, Sears. I, I just was reading all these Civil War books. Mm-hmm. Um, and to a point where I think I had learned everything I needed to know about Civil War campaigns and battles. Uh, then I migrated to World War II because I am a avarice, avarice reader. I love to read. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I just started reading about World War II. I think first my first books were about the Africa Corps and the Battle of Bulge. Uh, but then um, I became very interested in the Pacific Theater, the mm-hmm. Marine amphibious operations and the great carrier battles. So you've, you know, it sounds like you've kind of covered a lot of, um, a lot of breadth, at least in, in American military history. Um, are there, are there military history books um, that have really influenced you over, over the course of, of your life? Or, you know, are there any particular ones that, that jump out? And, and I know you, of course, you know, made your way to the Eastern Front. Um, but you know, any books that jump out in terms of influence? I think, you know, as I grew up, definitely I can think of three books or three sets of books mm-hmm. <laughs> that really uh, impressed me and made me stop and think. And I think the first one I would mention is Douglas Southall Freeman's uh, three-volume set on Lee's lieutenants. 
mm-hmm. about the Corps Division and Brigade commanders that served under Lee. Mm-hmm. And I thought especially Volume 3 was gripping, where Lee was constantly grappling with the problem of identifying promising replacements for fallen generals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you know, attrition in command was very high in the American Civil War. Right. And so Lee was constantly having to find new brigade leaders and new division commanders in the midst of a very difficult campaign. Sure. And that uh, really interested me. Uh, you know, he found some gems. There were also some bad ones. Right. <laughs> but uh, there were a few that never really made a name for themselves because they took command so late in the war. But uh, they surely were the equal of, say, uh, John Bell Hood as a brigade leader. Mm-hmm. in the Army of Northern Virginia. And so it was interesting to learn about these people. Sure. I think the next book that really impressed me was David Chandler's classic Campaigns of Napoleon. Oh, yeah. Which is just a wonderful one-volume treatment of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, that was really my first, what I thought was real history. I, it really mm-hmm. impressed me that this is, okay, the, the craft of a historian. But what then... Was if yes, I may just ask here, what what made you know Chandler's work stand out so much? What was different about it? I think it covered the entire sweep of the Napoleonic Wars in a masterful way. Um, I'm sorry, I just got a text. I'm oh, sorry. Oh, no problem. No problem. Um, anyway, but um, it covered the entire war. It's very well written, very well researched, and I was impressed too because I didn't know much about Napoleon before starting reading that book, mm. and by the end of it, I thought I had a very good understanding of the Napoleonic Wars. Sure, sure. Then I think one of the best Christmas gifts I ever received when I was a little older was nearly a complete set of the official U.S. Army history in World War II. Oh, the Green Books. Yes, the Green Books. Yeah, yeah. It was nearly a complete set. Wow. <laughs> so That's a lot of books, yeah. <laughs> it gave me many years of pleasure and education as I had delved into separate volumes. Of course, it provided a very parochial army view of sure. operations in the Pacific, so mm-hmm. yeah, some yeah. books clash with the official marine view. <laughs> right, right. But still great uh, great resources nonetheless. Um, yeah. Yeah, no. I, I whenever I see those, you know, on the um, on the shelves of a library, I'm just taken by how much space how much space they take up and uh, the, the number of pages per volume. I mean, it was it was a huge undertaking. Oh, absolutely! Excellent maps too, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've certainly uh, uh, called on them and used them uh, more than a few times. So, Stuart, what led you to translating works in Russian of the Soviet Union struggle? against Germany? Well, I think the simple answer is unemployment. Mm, yeah. <laughs> for years, I worked as a statistician for a small consulting company here in Iowa. Mm. Uh, I've always liked statistics. Um, and we did a variety of uh, program evaluations and community studies and housing studies. But I lost my job when the consulting company folded after the state ruled that community housing studies had to be done by local councils of government. Mm. And that took out our bread and butter. And I remember I was so irked because 
about a month later, I received a call from a gentleman working at the local council of government who asked me how I determined sample size. And <laughs> I was very irked that they had taken the work from me and given it to a guy who didn't even know about sample size. Yeah, I can imagine. I think somebody could Google it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you, you can uh, you can figure it out on your own. Right. <laughs> wow. Anyway, you know, I was fully unemployed. Um, so I started looking for another job, and it would have required a move, perhaps to Oregon or perhaps to Arizona. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I had a son in high school and another son in middle school, and we kind of took a family vote, and nobody really wanted to move. Mm. <laughs> so my wife, I worked out a deal with my wife. She would go back to work. She's always had a good income as an IT specialist. Um, and I said, okay, I'll stay at home, raise the kids, but i got to find something to do. I'll go crazy sure. if I'm just Mr. Mom. Right, right. And this was all well after the Soviet Union collapsed. I think it happened around 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remembered, of course, well, I knew some Russian that I had studied in college, and I knew that our view of the Eastern Front was dominated by German memoirs mm -hmm. and German <laughs> studies and German, <laughs> you know, viewpoint. I'm, I'm sensing a trend here. <laughs> right, exactly. And so I thought, well, you know, it takes two sides to fight, and sure. there needed to be more known in the U.S about the Soviet side of the Eastern Front. Sure. And so I had a contact in Russia at the time, and I had the idea of seeing if there were any surviving veterans who would uh, care to share their recollections with me. Wow. And uh, they agreed and went to a local veterans association and got the names and addresses of a couple of veterans hmm. and visited them and found the second guy uh, when she arrived he pulled out a manuscript out of his desk and said I wrote this back in the late 1950s do you think Mr. Britton would be interested in translating it and that book eventually became my first translation Nikolai Litvin's 800 Days on the Eastern Front oh wow yeah what was what was that experience like? You know, uh, this this is your first first translation. Uh, you're you're kind of stepping into this this world of um, you know Soviet veteran memoirs. How did that how did that experience go for you? Well, it's um it introduced me to the problems of translation, mm. and it also I was very fortunate that. Uh, David Glantz took an interest in my project. Mm, wow, that's and awesome. Asked him a question. You know, he very kindly shared his email address in one of his books. And so I contacted him with a question, and he asked it and then asked me what I was doing. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I told him I'm working on a Russian memoir of the war. And he said, oh, that's very interesting. When you are done with it, would you care to share the manuscript with me so I could take a look at it? And I said, I have no problem in that. And so I went ahead and finished the translation and sent him a copy of the manuscript and didn't hear anything for 
two or three weeks, and then suddenly I get a phone call. My wife picks it up and says, Stuart, it's David Blanche. Do you want to talk with him? (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, I dashed to the phone. (laughs) Sure. Um, And he was telling me that he found my manuscript at the bottom of a stack of manuscripts that he'd been asked to review, and he said when he reached it, he thought he found a gem. He said, it is ready for publication as is. He said, I wouldn't make any changes to it. And then he told me, I am going to forward this to the University Press of Kansas with my strongest recommendation that they publish it. Wow. And and for our our listeners, Stuart, you know, who is uh, David Glantz? Well, David Glantz is a former U.S. Army colonel who is, as people might know, a prolific author (laughs) of books on the Eastern Front, many of them using translated uh, Soviet documents Mm -hmm. that uh, I think he was uh, acquiring Mm -hmm. over the years. And, uh, you know, I've tried to collect all of David Glantz's books, and they currently take up nearly two full shelves of my bookcase. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, to say he's prolific. I mean, we need to we need to maybe create another word to just describe his his output. He's he's like one of the deans of um, you know the Eastern Front in the English speaking world. Absolutely, uh, so many books. I know what I think in the last last few years he's he released a um, a massive three volume um, you know work on Stalingrad. You know, just uh, highly detailed accounts about the fighting there and I think the the lead up to the the fighting in the city and and um you know the German um you know German struggle to to take this the city that's named after Stalin um just an amazing work right using using both I think German and um lots of Soviet sources he's so. done the same now with the uh, battle of for Smolensk in 1941 oh, wow. Barbarossa derailed Mm-hmm. It's it's just as massive. <laughs> it's three volumes, uh, like the Stalingrad trilogy, and it goes mm-hmm. into the same detail in the fighting for Smolensk in July to September 1941. Yeah, I, I think that the the more uh, he's written, the longer the books have gotten. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm certainly not complaining. They're they're gems. No, and he is widely considered the foremost scholar on the Eastern Front. Mm-hmm. And so to get his approval for my slender little <laughs> memoir translation just really floored me. Sure. Uh, but that really started me off. And then he propelled it even further because he told me he had a memoir that someone had asked him to translate, but he just didn't have time, so he asked me if I wanted to. Wow. And so that came my second book uh, by... Isaac Kobolansky, yes. Red Artillery Officer on the Eastern Front, I believe it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, so David Glantz was part and parcel in kind of bringing me into this profession. Uh, and I owe him a tremendous amount of debt. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great introduction. I can't think of anyone better, you know, in, in this field. And, and that second book is uh, kind of what put us into into touch. So I remember being at the basic school um, and going through that book uh, and seeing that there were some really great 
um, vignettes that I could turn into decision forcing cases. Um, and I think it was Colonel Glantz who put us in touch, if, if I recall. I believe uh, so. I believe yeah. So. And, and then we, we chatted a little bit about it and, uh, you put me in touch with the, uh, with the author and, um, yeah, that was such a cool experience to just hear about, you know, getting more details about some of the engagements he fought against the Germans and, and to think, you know, hey, this guy was, this guy was there and he was, he was manning. What, I'm trying to remember, were they, were they, um, 76.2 millimeter, uh, NA tank guns? And a 45 millimeter. 45. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. They were, and the, the barrels, I think, were much shorter than the, the, um, 76.2. Um, Correct. It's just really, really fascinating guy. And unfortunately, I think he's, he's passed away uh, since then. But Rare and passing opportunity to speak with some of these Red Army veterans. Uh, I've had the chance several times, and it's just amazing to get the chance to talk with them and to think that they lived through some of these. Exactly. Uh, exactly, yeah. Things. Uh, so, but unfortunately, yeah, most of them have now passed on. Uh, Lance and I used to joke that these guys were going to live forever because they marched so many miles during the war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so many trenches. They were probably in top physical condition. Sure. No, again, amazing, amazing introduction to this field. Um, so, Stuart, in, in your view, you know, having done all these translations, done all this, this editing, what are the key roles and responsibilities of a translator, an editor, you know, especially one of Russian military works? I think that the key thing that has propelled my own work as a translator is to always push for objectivity in the study of history. Mm. And then as a translator, to communicate the author's ideas clearly to the English speaker. Mm -hmm. um, it's perhaps a little more difficult to do that when translating memoirs, in part because often they're writing in a vernacular style. Sure. And I'm always torn, do I try to translate that into vernacular English and using expressions like, you know, 23 skidoo and things like that? Right, right. <laughs> I think that sounds too corny, too phony. I mean, these mm -hmm. are people who aren't Americans. Sure. So in that case, I've always pushed, instead of trying to capture the flavor of the language, just to make sure that it's clearly expressed in English. Mm. Uh, that said, one of the highest compliments I ever received was from Artyom Drapkin. I don't know if you know him. But mm -hmm. he was sitting on a massive repository of memoirs and stories and vignettes from the uh, World War II's Eastern Front in Moscow. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. And he had a website which called Yapunyu, or I Remember. Ah, yes. Okay, now it's ringing the bell. Okay. Yes. And he passed a manuscript to me. Oh, no, I translated a book, and I, 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 for the life of me, can't remember which one it was now. Uh, they do tend to get lost. She's <laughs> done so many. So, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the publisher sent my translation to him to review. 
And one of the most impressive things I ever heard from somebody about my work, uh, he wrote that before he saw my translation, he didn't think it was possible to have such a translation from Russian into English. Really? And he said that Stuart not only captured every nuance of the language, he also captured the education level of the speakers and captured, <laughs> you know, emotional tones. And so I always thought that was a very high compliment from Artyom Drofkin. Oh, that's that's awesome, and and I think well deserved. I mean, like you know, like I said at the the opening of our conversation, um, I don't know too many other people uh, who've translated as many uh, Russian language works of of the Eastern Front as as you. Uh, they may may be out there, uh, but I think you're you're definitely uh, you know leading the pack, and and your work is is first rate. So um, well, I not surprised. Like to here say and acknowledge my wonderful wife. Please. Uh, because David Glantz warned me when he recommended publishing 800 Days on the Eastern Front. He told me one thing. He said, Stuart, do not expect to earn a living wage from this. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and it was advice well taken. Uh, so I simply could not do what I do without the support of my wife. Which, yeah, which is awesome. So thank, please thank her uh, on, on our behalf. Um, so a as the translator and editor, do you take any inspiration from, from other editors or translators or are there any models you follow? Well, I'd like to return for just a moment to your oh, previous please. question about uh, the key roles and responsibilities. And I said sure. one of the things I always push for is objectivity in the study mm -hmm. of history. Uh, I never want to give a reader false information. And occasionally this has become a problem <laughs> when dealing with Russian historians. I've uh, had brief conflicts with a couple of authors <laughs> because of a false claim or assertion in their books. And I've been pleased to find that in every case there is a disagreement. If I'm able to provide supporting evidence, they are quite happy to see me change the book. Interesting. Um, I know that an astute reader noted that I had removed or changed a few statements and Igor Sietov's book about the MiGs over the Yalu, Red Devils over the Yalu mm -hmm. in the Korean War. And he's right, I did. But I only did this after the prior agreement of the author. We had to talk about it, discuss it, and then the author would uh, approve of my change. So I never do these things without the author knowing about it. But sure. if I see a statement that is <laughs> patently false, I mm -hmm. don't translate it. I will not put it in the book. That's, which is pretty interesting. I mean, to to have that back and forth with with an author. You know, the book's already published in Russian, right? You're you're translating it, you're editing it, you're bringing it to an English speaking market, um, and then you come across a statement that just is false, or you know, you you know to be suspect, um, and then to have that conversation. Has has there ever been a situation where? Um, you know, the, the project almost came to a halt because there couldn't be agreement or, or you know, there were problems with, um, hey, you know, I, I think this is not worth keeping in or, or it's, it's untrue. You know, have you ever run into that? Or I think authors... the authors have always been very amenable 
is great. Um, yeah, to their I credit. think they realize that they live in a society where truth isn't very valued, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that our society, until recently, has been different. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, uh, so they have not objected when I made a change. Mm-hmm. So you ask if I've been inspired by other editors or translators? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think as I've already said, I've been most inspired by David Glantz. Um, you know, many of his books are admittedly quite dense and chewy. Mm-hmm. But they just show such a tremendous amount of research and hard work. And so that's really been my role model. Sure. Uh, you know, just given that passionate dedication to the subject, uh, I've, I've attempted to emulate that. But when I'm so busy with my own translations, I don't really have time to study other translators' sure. work. I think I do recall being very impressed by some work I saw of Harold Orenstein. Oh, yeah. I think he was a linguist in the Army or something like that. Yeah, I can't remember his background, but he's he's a contemporary of, of uh, David Glantz, if I'm not mistaken. I think they've worked together so, before. Yeah, and I was very impressed by his translation skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure there are other highly capable translators out there. I, I'm just <laughs> too busy with my own translation work to really pay attention. So one thing in Russian culture that makes choosing this profession difficult is Russians write big books. (laughs) I mean, some of their books run 800, 900, 1,000 pages. These are history books, right? Yes, these are history books. And so they run, well, David Glantz's recent (laughs) production. (laughs) But every single book is like that. I mean, they are large undertakings. <laughs> Could you talk to that? I mean, do you have any any thoughts on, you know, is this sort of a national characteristic? If, if very much so. This? Very much so. Russians, in a way, are like Texans. They are impressed by anything big. Mm. Anything bigger is better. It's mm-hmm. very much part of their culture. But also, I think the author in Russian history, Russian culture, has always had a special role, a special voice, that they were allowed to communicate things that people couldn't in speech. Mm-hmm. And so when they had a chance to write, they would try to put so much in there, and society tolerated it. I mean, they mm-hmm. were seen as having a special role in the society. So that's why you have, you know, Anna Karenina <laughs> and Crime and Punishment, These all these massive books in Russia. Uh, because the author is sharing with the otherwise impoverished Russian culture this special voice. It's fascinating, yeah. Uh, So, and would you say that this propensity for, you know, size in, in, you know, published works, that cuts across genres? So it's not just, you know, you you mentioned... uh, crime and punishment, so we're looking at nonfiction, of course, is history, but is there a tendency you've seen for just just large, lengthy works in, in Russia? I think in any academic work, that's certainly the case that yeah. I've seen. Yeah. Um, of course, there are writers in Russian who write short stories and 
Fultons, I think they're called, mm -hmm. uh, character studies, but in history especially, they tend to be very large. A couple sure. of them have written more moderate-length books. I think I translated one of them, and I can't think off the top of my head. It was about the uh, Budapest, the German offensives to recapture Budapest. Okay. Is this 1945? Uh, 1945, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so back to the Battle of Bolsa would be 1945. Okay. Um, and I forget the author's name. He, uh, he's written quite a bit. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank there. I should know. Oh, but uh, uh, his books tend to be more moderate in length. They don't tend to be as detailed. So, so do you have any favorite um, Russian military historians, you know, wh whether it's someone's work you like translating or work you like reading? Uh, but I, I know there's some uh, really prominent, uh, well-regarded um, Russian military historians of, of the Eastern Front. You know, any favorites among them? I think particularly Zamulin, because mm -hmm. I always learn something from his books. And he agrees with me that the historian's role is to be objective as far as possible and to, prevent, to present history accurately. Mm -hmm. And this actually got him in trouble in Russia. Really? Um, you know, he was on the staff of the regional battlefield museum there in Pokrovka, and he was fired from the job because, as the director told him, he was writing things that he shouldn't be writing. But yeah, wow. he, <laughs> he said, I'm going to keep writing the way I write because it's the truth. Um, so I admire Zamulin and I enjoy translating his books. We're trying to encourage him to branch out from just the southern face of the Battle of Curse mm -hmm. and perhaps do some works on the northern face of the Bulge or write about some other battle in the area. Uh, and he's entertaining the idea. I won't say he's committed to that, but he's entertaining the idea. What is... I'm you sorry, know, I, go ahead. I remember I asked Zemulin once if there was another historian that he considered to be as objective and dedicated to the truth as he is. And he instantly replied, Igor Zizhkov. And so I enjoy translating his books. Zemulin put me in touch with Zizhkov. Oh, wow. And I translated his first book for Hellion Press, Confronting Case Blue, and I am now translating his book about the opening week of case uh, blue, mm -hmm. the first seven days of the offense, German offensive and the drive toward Verinege. And he, I know he's written another book that I hope to translate. He writes in a very approachable way, but he also writes very serious history. Mm -hmm. And then finally, one book that really affected me, I think, was Lef Lachucholsky's book on the Vyazma tragedy of 1941. Mm. It actually won a prize um, because it's very serious history, but it's it has a touching human story wrapped around it because he was trying to find out what happened to his father who disappeared in the in the battle. Mm 
And it set him on a search. And I remember he, early in the book, says I approached an official who told me that I really shouldn't go in search of what happened to my father because I might not like what I find. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. So, and then, so then he goes into the uh, Vyazma, Battle of Vyazma, and that final German lunge towards Moscow. And then at the end of the book, he does relate to what he learned about his father's fate. So it was a very touching human story, I thought. And so I think those three authors are the ones I've most enjoyed translating. Yeah. I know that Lapuchowski has written another book with uh, Boris Pavlerchik. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's about uh, the 1941 German invasion, and it's called A Pre-Programmed Defeat. Oh, interesting. And I'm certainly interested in translating it. Yeah. If yeah, I can of, get to it one day. <laughs> which, yeah, I, I, hope, I hope you can. Uh, and we've talked about this before. I mean, there's just so much stuff to translate, right? There's there, And we'll, of course, I think get um, more into the topic of, you know, um, the average American's understanding or even the average U.S. service member's understanding of um, – the Soviet experience, the Russian experience in the Second World Second World War. But one of the things I find so interesting, you were just talking about uh, Zamulin. Um, here's a guy who um, I think, like like any good historian, is focused on on telling the truth, being objective. But he's living in a place, you know, modern day Russia, where, um, like you said, truth is is not as uh, respected or as forthcoming. Um, as as we I think we'd like it to be in, in, in America, and he's got to he's got to you know worry to some degree about um, how his works are are seen by the government and and seen by uh, you know other other folks. Um, what you know can you can you speak to that at all? I guess the challenges of um, you know yes, being. I think it's yeah, something I, I I actually worry about with my profession because. Just a year ago, I think, uh, Putin and the Russian Assembly passed a law that made it illegal to, quote-unquote, besmirch the honor of the Red Army. Mm. And it was punishable by up to three years in prison. Wow. And I wondered what chilling effect this might have on authors in Russia who write about the Eastern Front. And I remember when I translated Igor Zvizhkov's book, Confronting Case Blue, there were a couple of things in there that actually worried me if he would fall afoul of this new law. Mm-hmm. I actually wrote him <laughs> and asked him, you know, are, are you worried about this? Do you really want this to become known in the West? And he replied that he's just a small fish and he's not really worried <laughs> So if he wasn't going to worry about it, I guess I wasn't going to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think the, the challenges historians in Russia face are a lot um a lot bigger, maybe harder to uh to 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 address and, and get over than what you see in the United States. Uh, I mean, there's certainly I think there's a question of safety for some some people, right? If you if you do be smirch um the 
the Red Army or other institutions associated with the Soviet Union. Um, I mean, hey, you're, you mentioned prison time. Uh, yeah. I imagine that there are other other penalties unofficially that uh, people have, have encountered. Well, I think generally that as long as you are not attacking the status quo in Russia, mm. then you are not going to be falling out of a fifth-story window mm-hmm. or having a car accident. Sure, sure. Um, I think as long as you are looking back in history, as long as you are not too strident <laughs> mm-hmm. in attacking especially the leadership in the Red Army, uh, the quote-unquote sacred cows <laughs> in sure. the Red Army, uh, then you're probably going to be okay. Right. So that um, th- this kind of leads into a question. You know, we were talking about um, some of your favorite Russian historians, military historians. You know, which book or books have you enjoyed editing or translating most, and, and why? What's really kind of stood out for you? I think... Definitely, I think I most enjoyed translating uh, Zdvishkov's last book, Confronting Case Blue, Mm. Um, because it was written, to my mind, it's a perfect illustration of the German use of a panzer division in 1942 as a fire brigade. Oh, interesting. And what makes it interesting is he looks at this attempt to kind of crush the northern flank of the German drive to Stalingrad mm-hmm. that took place in July 1942. Um, and he presents it day by day from both the German and the Red Army side. So you see what the Red Army was doing on that day, and then you turn and look at what the Germans were doing on that day. Mm. And he praises, interestingly enough, the logistics officer, I believe it was the 9th Panzer Division that was called upon to plug the gap. Mm -hmm. And he quickly saw that they didn't have the fuel or ammunition to (laughs) counterattack. And so he had to move heaven and earth to find the supplies to mount the counterattack. Uh, I thought that was very interesting. I certainly think the Eastern Front is a laboratory for someone who wants to learn about logistics. Sure. Vast distances. I think. Yes. Yeah, vast distances. I could learn quite a bit studying the Eastern Front. And, and I'm sure, you know, certainly for the Germans, um, you know, they were they found themselves throughout many parts points of the war having to respond um, to, you know, as, as you put it, you know, um, to serve, you know, units serving as fire fire brigades and plugging in holes in the line, conducting counterattacks and doing this all on a shoestring, you know, both mm-hmm. in terms of logistics and manpower. Um, mm-hmm. Just never, I think after Barbarossa, correct me if I'm wrong, um, or maybe even to, to Case Blue, uh, German infantry divisions were, were never at full strength. Uh, again, you know, they ju- the German infantry just suffered so uh, terribly in in the uh, you know the opening phases of of the um, war in in the Soviet Union. 
that's very true. Already by 1943, that was one of the biggest problems with the German Hearst offensive was the mm -hmm. lack of infantry. Mm -hmm. They didn't have enough infantry divisions, and they didn't have enough infantry in those infantry divisions. Sure, sure. And that was a constant problem. I know that it slowed the drive in the south by the 2nd SS Panzer Corps because Totenkopf and then Das Reich had to peel off forces to screen the flank, which should have been the job of infantry. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have the infantry, so it weaken the main drive by the need to detach significant amount of forces just to screen the flank against Soviet counterattacks. Sure. So, you know, armored, vehicle, armored vehicles or armored fighting vehicles would not be enough to, um, you know, push push the attack and do so successfully and to protect any sort of thrust, right? You'd need to have infantry uh, on the flank to, um, to, to screen and, and uh, serve as a uh, some sort of guard um, against... Yes, I mean, the Germans had some very good anti-tank guns and they had some very good anti-tank shells. I think already they were starting to use the APCR shells. Mm -hmm. um, and they had anti-tank guns that could certainly knock out Soviet tanks in 1943. Sure. So even though the Germans... Uh, were facing Soviet armored counterattacks. Uh, the infantry divisions equipped with enough Stugs and anti-tank guns were capable of defeating those. And Stuart, for our listeners, Stugs are Sturmgeschützer, right? They're they're um, assault guns, essentially a right. currentless tank. Yeah, the the Sturmgeschütz. Yeah. They call them, and so they call them Stugs for short. Right. And these are, I think the Germans produced a, a tremendous amount of these things to... They were cheaper to produce than a turreted tank, and they were effective weapons. And so, yeah, the Germans cranked those out. Sure. They, they cranked those out. Yeah. So, Stuart, you've, you've translated, again, you know, my count is approximately 20, uh, 20 books on the Soviet Union's war against Nazi Germany. How much have you learned about that conflict since becoming a translator? I mean, have you seen myths or legends shattered, mysteries explained, theories debunked, um, you know, any anything you can share with us that think would be really interesting? I've learned quite a bit about the Eastern Front in this work, but the Eastern Front is very much like that parable about the elephant and the blind men mm. because it was such an enormous front. And the fighting was so different on different sectors of that front. Uh, and some of my work hasn't touched very much upon, say, the fighting in the Leningrad area, mm -hmm. the Volkhov area. Um, I haven't had to translate very much in the Moscow area after Operation Typhoon in 1941. Uh, so, you know, in a way, there's still so much I don't know. But when you ask about certain myths being shattered, I do think that with my work, I've learned enough that we've been carrying certain stereotypes in the West for a very long time about the Red Army that mm. really aren't true, that are too uh, simplistic a view of the topic. 
I mean, for instance, um, commissars. Mm-hmm. We've always had this image that the commissar is this rigid <laughs> ideologue who shoots men and just drives them into crazy frontal assaults, costly frontal assaults. Right, right. I've actually talked with a few Red Army veterans, and they have a much more nuanced view of the commissars. I remember Boris Gorbachevsky, who wrote uh, the book Through the Maelstrom, which was published by University Press of Kansas. Speaking with him, he told me that the commissars were very much like the commanders. There were good ones and there were bad ones. Mm. And he said a lot of men respected the commissar especially if that commissar led from the front or went right into the battle with them mm-hmm. and shared their experiences. The commissars were also educated. A lot of the Red Army soldiers were not highly educated. Some of them were functionally illiterate. Mm. Uh, that's one way Russian society today is very different. But... Uh, they looked up to the commissar. And so I think this view that we have of the commissar being this terrible man who just went around shooting people cowering in the trenches is very distorted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an army is always rooted in its culture, and I think to an extent we should view it through that lens. Sure. I think too long we viewed it through our own Western lens. Mm-hmm. I think the same applies to the blocking detachments that Stalin created with his famous not one step back order in July 1942. Sure. You know, we saw the opening scene of the movie Stalingrad where those poor Russians are getting off the landing craft and charging into just a maelstrom of German machine gun fire. And so they Mm -hmm. go recoiling back and then they're opened up on with Red Army machine guns from behind. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very cartoonish <laughs> view of blocking detachments. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the Red Army veterans I spoke to, although the order seems very draconian to us, they said, they argued that it was absolutely necessary at the time. Mm-hmm. They saw nothing wrong with it. They said there had to be something done to stop the seemingly endless retreats, and to put some backbone in the Red Army soldier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they they don't see it as a bad thing. They think it was an absolutely necessary order. And a lot of these blacking detachments didn't just gun down men who were running away from the front. A lot of times they simply intercepted them, mm-hmm. and then they would determine, do we just send them back to their units, or do we send them into penal companies and battalions? Yeah, some of them were shot on the spot. (laughs) Mm. But um, I think most of them were just rounded up and returned to their unit. Stuart, could you you talk for a moment about, you know, you just mentioned uh, penal companies, penal units. Um, I I think a lot of our listeners won't know what those were. What, What were these things? Early in the war, the Red Army set up are called penal companies and battalions for Red Army. One was for just the soldiers, the rank-and-file soldiers. The other was for officers 
who committed some infraction, who may have showed some flash of rebellions or cowardice, um, but often, you know, somebody who might have gone AWOL uh, or who had disappeared for a time, you know, going mm-hmm. AWOL, uh, when they showed back up, they were forced into these penal companies and battalions. Mm. And that's the next stereotype or myth that I think needs to be addressed in this society. Sure. Um you know, we know that these companies and battalions were told they they had to atone for their sins with their blood. And if they did so, they could return to their regular unit. So what happened was these companies and battalions were given the most dangerous assignments in an assignment, uh, in, a, uh, in an offensive. Mm-hmm. They would have to assault a particularly heavy fortified complex or they would have to clear a minefield, or they would have to spearhead the assault. And if they survived that, they were allowed to go back to their regular units. But I talked to Boris Gorbachevsky, who actually served time in one of these, because he went briefly AWOL Mm. from his uh, company. And he told me that, in a way, these... Penal companies and battalions were treated like any other regular line company and battalion. They were equipped with top weapons. They had the Papa Shah submachine guns. They had mm-hmm. they had the, the support of uh, supporting weapons. So in a way, they were treated no differently than any regular line company. They were just given the toughest and most dangerous assignments. Mm -hmm. There is a book that was written a few years ago about these penal companies, battalions in Russians, and I, uh, uh, Russian penal battalion companies, and I do hope to translate that one day. It looks very interesting, and I think it would dispel a lot of myths we have in the West about them. No, I think that would be fascinating. I remember growing up and hearing about these units, you know, you're, you see some penal company that's got to make its way through a minefield or, you know, you'd hear stories about um, the the local Russian commander using the company as a human mine clearing uh, unit, right? Like they're, they're going to just run through right. uh, this area and just detonate the mines with their bodies. And, you know, that's, that's uh, your ticket to, if you survive, that's your ticket to being, you know, reinstated as a as a full citizen of the uh, Soviet Union. Correct. Uh, but and I think it is quite possible somewhere on the enormous Russian front that did happen. Mm-hmm. They were told to spearhead the assault, and if there were happened to be an unknown minefield in the way, they were the ones that <laughs> passed through it and triggered it first. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but I think. So we have to understand that just because they were serving in these battalions didn't mean that they weren't given good weapons and good support. (laughs) Yeah, because I'd assume that, you know, the Soviet commanders still want the units to be successful, right? They they don't, um, 
they don't want the unit wasted. It's there for a reason. Uh, they've, they've got people who've been succeed. It's certainly a feather in their cap. Sure. And so they don't want to see their attack frustrated from the outset. <laughs> right. And, well, they want to get those men cracking on, and if the assault battalion or assault company happens to penetrate the lines first, then that's all the better. Sure. So. And then I have one more comment about oh, that one thing that really impressed and surprised me as I've thought about the Red Army in the Second World War was its rapid ability to learn from the war experience. And that mm-hmm. surprised me in a highly ideological society. Um, you know, you saw that after the terrible setbacks in 1941, already by the end of 1942, they pulled off the Stalingrad operation. Right, right. I mean, and certainly by 1943, they stopped the major German offensive that, of that year. Um, they learned very quickly, and I've always wondered exactly how they did that. And I found out, and then perhaps other people have long known about this, I think certainly David Glantz knew about it, um, each army in the Red Army had a department in the headquarters that had a cumbersome title, such as Department to Draw Lessons from the War Experience. And it was job, it was their job to review a recent battle or operation and see if any best practices could be drawn from the experience. So they would draw up a report of lessons from the battle and send them up to the Stavka, which was the headquarters of the high command. Mm-hmm. And the Stavka would distill them and share them in the form of recommendations, lessons, brochures, and pamphlets. And as the war went on, even as Hitler became more dogmatic and more unwilling to listen to his general, Stalin went the opposite direction. He became much more flexible as the war proceeded, and he would listen to professional professional military advice. Mm. Of course, there's nothing that succeeds like winning. <laughs> right. <laughs> so maybe it's easy to listen to your generals when you're winning. Than sure. it is when you're losing. But I think that's a great point, right? Because I think so many of us have this view of Stalin mostly because of um, the purges, right? His, his purges of the, the Red Army uh, prior to the war, and then you know, some of some of his handling of the disasters, uh, you know, of Barbarossa with some of the commanders that this guy was just um, unwilling to listen to other people and he was he was incredibly paranoid and which I think you'd still argue he was but um that he 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 wouldn't willingly listen to to some of his subordinate commanders but that that's just not true especially after 1941 i think mm-hmm. you know there is a story that stalin became catatonic for a time mm. As the Germans drove rapidly toward moscow he retreated to his dacha and nobody heard from him and when he finally reemerged and gave this famous address to the Russian people that began, Bratya y Sostri, he called them brothers and sisters. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, I think he realized that he had botched everything up. Sure. 
and he was going to need help <laughs> getting out of this mess. And certainly as certain commanders gained successes for him, Stalin uh, mm-hmm. rapidly promoted them and took counsel of them. Zhukov was mm-hmm. one, Konyev was one, Rokosovsky was one, sure. and he actually listened to these guys. There's a famous story before the 1944 summer operation that destroyed the Army Group Center, um, Operation Bagration, that Rokosovsky's front had a key role in that offensive. And as they were planning it, Rokosovsky was called to the Kremlin, and he was asked to give his thoughts on his front's offensive. And he told Stalin that he thought it would be better if his front made two main thrusts against the German line, not just one. And Stalin looked at him carefully, and he said, are you sure? And Rokosovsky held his ground. He said, yes, I think I should have two main thrusts. And Stalin said, I think you'd better go out in the hall and think about that. Because Stalin thought just one primary thrust would be proper. Yeah. And when Rokosovsky was out in the hall, somebody rushed up to him and said, you know, what are you doing? Yeah. Don't him Stalin. Uh, and Rokosovsky, after a few minutes, went back in, and Stalin looked at him and said, so one? And Rokosovsky said, no, two. And Stalin respected that. And he said, wow. then proceed. Just make sure it works. Yeah. Which, uh, it's just, uh, <laughs> I mean, imagine whatever. Rokosovsky's courage and his skill. I mean, he, he made sure that they worked, and they worked brilliantly. I think Rokosovsky. Stalin ruined the coattails. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, Zhukov gets, gets a lot of, uh, a lot of attention and respect, um, Rokosovsky is one of those commanders who, as you said, just highly skilled, uh, very successful, but um, certainly in, I think, English-speaking circles, for those who are uh, not students of uh, the Eastern Front, you know, people are saying, who? Who is this guy? But here's someone who is willing to tell Stalin. Um, yeah, Konstantinovich you know, just... Rokosovsky, who is actually Polish by birth. Mm, okay. And today in Poland, they still hate the guy. Really? <laughs> they despised Rokosowski because he controlled Poland after the war. Oh. And he served Stalin loyally. He was a loyalist. Mm. But he didn't allow that to coarsen him. He was always mm. known as the gentleman commander. Mm. He was rare for a top Red Army commander in that he didn't physically abuse his subordinates. He didn't beat them. Mm-hmm. You know, he dressed them courteously. He listened to them. He had a very successful team that he pulled together that stayed with him throughout almost the entire war. His chief of staff and chief of operations followed him from post to post to post. And they were finally split up, I think, in early 1945. Hmm. Because Stalin was not going to let Rokosowski take Berlin because he was Polish. And so he was shunted off to handle the final offensive in the north. 
Was this against uh, Army Group North? Uh, it was even later that in the final Berlin offensive. Oh, um, in Ber- okay. North of Berlin, he was okay. operating along the Baltic coast and to the south of there. Okay, okay. So, Stuart, you know, you've mentioned some some really interesting personalities and 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 events. You know, of all the of all the lesser known or forgotten offensives operations battles, personalities that you've, you've met in the course of your work, you know, what's the one you've found or ones you've found most interesting and why? I really think the Battle of Urgef has been interesting to me, of particular interest to me, because it was a forgotten battle. Mm-hmm. It was forgotten because for many, many months, the Red Army tried to take Urgef from the Ninth Army and failed. And they suffered horrifying casualties. I mean, the casualty lists from just that one battle are just staggering. I know the Red Army lost more combat fatalities in the fight for their just salient than the U.S. did in the entire Second World War. Wow. Which is just staggering. Yeah. I think the U.S. had 400,000 combat fatalities, somewhere around there in the Second mm-hmm. World War, which is a horrifying figure. Mm-hmm. But there are estimates that the Red Army lost as many as 800,000 men dead in the fighting for Urzhev and the Urzhev salient. And Stuart, that's, that's spelled R-Z-H-E-V, correct? R-Z-H-E-V, yes, Urzhev. Okay. Uh, the yeah. is pronounced like an S, Urzhev. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And I know that two of my early memoirs, it just so happened that these men served in adjacent sectors around this. And they both had just horrifying experiences that they recount in their memoirs. Mm -hmm. Boris Gorbachevsky took part in one of the human wave assaults. Wow. And his chapter on that is just compelling reading. I mean, it's so rare to have had a voice from the ranks of a human wave attack. Sure. And this was in 1942, I believe, in the summer of 1942, where his troops were told to take a German fortified line on a high rise. Uh, That ground around Jeff is very low and marshy, Mm -hmm. and so any high ground became a defensible position, and the Germans Mm -hmm. held some of that high ground. And so the Russians had to attack up this slope, and he talks about how they lined up and stepped off in serried ranks up the slope right into the teeth of German machine gun and mortar fire. And he was one of only four men who survived that battle in his company. Wow. So these you know, started with somewhere like 110 men, and 106 of them were killed during that attack. My gosh! So this, this human wave attacks, you know, they they're often, you know, I, I think back to um, Enemy at the Gates and some some other kind of popular uh, accounts, you know, movies of of Russian forces, Soviet forces, um, you know, massing uh, against German lines. So they they did in fact happen. And you've got uh, you've done a memoir of, of someone who experienced it. 
I yes, wonder though. Boris Gorbachevsky, his memoir was called Through the Maelstrom. Okay. Um, but uh, Pyotr Michin, uh, his memoir was called, I think, Red Artillery Officer on the Eastern Front. Mm -hmm. He was serving in the adjacent sector, and he describes working as a forward observer, having to crawl forward to identify a German artillery position. And he describes crawling this field that is just absolutely blanketed with Red Army bodies in various stages of decomposition. Gosh. And just clambering over body after body after body. And he talks about pausing at one point, and he looks to his left, and there's a body lying there, a relatively fresh body. And he's horrified when the eyes suddenly open. I mean, I can't imagine how startling that must have been. <laughs> no, and, and I imagine, like, you've got this field of bodies, and they're they're decaying. Um, you've got rigor mortis. You've got, you know, some bodies are probably jerking, you know, at different points. And um, you know, there's gas buildup, and, and you know. And there's, but there's also fresh bodies covering the rotting bodies. I mean, yeah. The flies, the smell, I mean, it's... It's just horrifying. It's just horrifying. And uh, he describes that on an adjacent sector of the Urgef salient. Wow. He was in a different army. But his account verifies everything Boris Gorbachevsky said about it. And this went on front after front around the Urgef salient. And it's just staggering to contemplate. I mean, it's just... It's just unbelievable. Um, so I've always been interested in that. I know that people of Urgef were offended that they were never named a hero city. Mm. After the war, Stalin and then Khrushchev and Brezhnev would designate certain cities as hero cities. Mm. And they thought Urgef deserved that. Sure. And they actually campaigned for it. I translated one of the Slender volumes that I've translated, the Urzhev Slaughterhouse by Svetlana Gerasimova. Mm -hmm. And she was very much part of that, calling for Urzhev to be named a hero city, but it never happened. Oh, it's just, it, it really, as you said, it really just staggers the imagination um, how many people were lost. And, you know, this was just, this is one front, one, one campaign or series of campaigns. Um, on a massive, just truly massive, uh, you know, battlefield stretching from, from, uh, you know, fighting in Finland uh, down to the Black Sea, yeah. right? All and the way just, down to the Crimea, all the way down to the Caucasus. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, mean, exactly. I mean, at the very time you had all that heavy fighting in Stalingrad that we know about so much, mm -hmm. there was another, another effort to take your just salient to the north that involved even more Red Army troops. It was even a larger battle than the Battle of Stalingrad. But again, we don't know so much about it, primarily because Stalin wanted it swept under the rug because it failed. And there, Stalin had succeeded. The winter offensive failed. I think that is uh, one of Glantz's best books. It's certainly one of his most readable books. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget, I think he calls it Zhukov's Greatest Defeat, and it describes the, uh, yeah, Zhukov's Greatest Defeat 
The Red Army's epic disaster in Operation Mars, 1942. Mm. Uh, it's very readable, and it describes that uh, offensive to reduce the Urgeth salient. But, I mean, it's amazing to think that at the same time they were launching this offensive on 25th November, we had the Operation Uranus right. attack to right. isolate the 6th Army. And the fighting at Urzhev involved even more Red Army troops than the <laughs> fighting in Stalingrad and around Stalingrad. It's it's amazing to think that there were all these offenses, offensives and operations that just failed. And so few people outside of um, Russia, uh, certainly in, in the United States, know about them, right? I know there was, I think Glance also did a book, uh, what was it, Red Storm over the Balkans, the failed Soviet attempt of uh, Soviet yeah. invasion of Romania, spring 1944. I mean, he's yeah. written entire books and I think atlases of offensives, battles that just did not make it into, I think, our, uh, you know, the, the Western the Western um, history of, of the war on the Eastern Front. And it's yes, just, I mean, he is the one that coined the term forgotten battles. Mm, of the yeah. Eastern Front, and I know he's made it his special study. I know he has unpublished articles and chapters dedicated to other forgotten battles and operations. Sure. Uh, so it's very much, uh, very much something I admire about David Glance that he's taken this on. Yeah. To make a lot of this fighting that we know nothing about because they've been swept under the rug by the Soviet Union. Uh, known to the Western audience, or right, it right. made him the most popular person in Russia. Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, and and and, to, and oh, by the way, he's a retired you know, U.S. Army colonel, so there's that too. Yeah, um, there's that too. <laughs> no, it's, so, Stuart, I, I'm curious. We, we kind of touched on it a little bit while you were giving these really fascinating examples, but you know, you talk about the number of deaths uh, that the United States experienced military deaths in World War II and, and how, I mean, that really just just doesn't compare to, not to downplay, of course, uh, sacrifices of the country, but just in terms of sheer numbers, the Soviet Union suffered so much more. Um, how well do you think Americans understand Russia's experiences in World War II? Little, <laughs> I think they simply do not understand the shattering impact the war had on Soviet society and on the economy and the Soviet psyche. Mm. The shock of 1941, that attack did come as a surprise to the vast majority of the citizens. They'd been told just days before about the great friendship between <laughs> the Soviet Union and Germany. Uh, and then to suddenly have German tanks pouring across the border came as an absolute shock. Uh, then you had the forced migration of millions of people, millions of people, and then this this nearly unimaginable human toll which devastated families and left entire villages empty. You know, I think there's estimates. They don't know really how many people died in the Soviet Union. Uh, 
during World War II, but estimates run somewhere between 60 and 80 million people. My God. Which is just <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah, I, I, I'm, you know, I keep, I keep pausing um, because it's just, I think, what was it? I think it was Stalin who said, um, I think it was Stalin, you know, um, the death of one is, is a tragedy. The death, death of a million is a statistic, something along those lines. And you just can't, you, know, you can imagine a football field or a football stadium full of people and then have someone say, no, imagine all those people die. But then mm-hmm. say, you know, imagine that football field, or again, the stadium, you know, 300 times over or whatever the number is. And you can't, you, you can't, it just becomes this abstraction. Um, so, yeah, I, mean, it, I can use Google Maps when I'm translating yeah. to make sure I can find this little village and find out how it's spelled. And oftentimes I can't find them. They're gone. Hmm. Just wiped they from the map. They are just wiped from the map. So, so it's very sobering. And I think Americans, by and large, are very parochial people. Yeah. They don't really know much about the rest of the world. You know, and also the East Front was just so vast, and the terrain and the fighting was so varied across the entire front. I know in the north around Leningrad, the fighting was very much like the trench warfare of First World War. Mm-hmm. You know, you had artillery duels and storming parties, and the terrain was very forested and swampy, which is why the Russians launched the biggest offenses there in the winter when the ground hardened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there are relatively few tanks in that sector of the front by 1943, especially on the German side. I mean, we're talking about tens of tanks. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, the road network was relatively sparse and bad. Mm-hmm. And the tanks could better be deployed elsewhere. But then you go to the south and you have those vast steps that allow mm-hmm. the armored maneuvers and the large-scale tank clashes. I mean, it's just... It just varied. You had the fighting in the Caucasus Mountains. You had mountain warfare. It's just just enormous. And I think it's hard for Americans just to grasp the magnitude of the fighting. So, you know, I'm curious to know then, Stuart, what, what do you think the typical Russians' view of America's role in, in World War II is? You know, how do they – because, of course, both, both of us being Americans living in the United States – we hear about Normandy. We hear about Iwo Jima. Uh, we hear about Midway, um, Italy, and North Africa, and all, all these other um, campaigns and battles uh, where the United States played either the leading role or, uh, you know, certainly a, a, um, a large contributing role. Um, what do Russians think about what the United States contributed to the, the Second World War? I think that most Russians know very little about it. I think there is lingering resentment that the U.S. didn't do more to aid the USSR. Mm -hmm. Uh, A few Russians remember Mm Lindley. And there's a couple of articles that have been written by Russians about the value of it. But most people think it was insufficient. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I know during the war, Red Army soldiers would make bitter jokes about the long delay in opening a second front. They started calling their tin cans of food 
second front, and they would say, "Open a second front." <laughs> <laughs> and this is this is in reference to the idea that you know Stalin, uh, Roosevelt, Churchill, the the Allied leaders uh, were were discussing, you know, when do we open up the second front? Because um, the Soviet Union for years is taking the brunt of of the German army's might um, and just taking unbelievable, as we discussed, unbelievable casualties. And, and there was discussion, correct me if I'm wrong, there was discussion of opening the, the second front in um, 1943. Yes. Uh, but, of course, it, it didn't happen. Um, and I and think Stalin was very disappointed about that. Yeah. And I think the Russian people, they had put up with so much for so long, and they just couldn't understand why America wasn't doing more. Mm-hmm. to help them. I do think most Russians know superficially about Normandy and they know superficially about the Battle of Bulge. Um, but all that pales next to their own war. Mm-hmm. You know, they think, and it's very much true, the Eastern Front was the epicenter of the war against Nazi Germany. Sure. And in their minds, nothing else comes close to it. <laughs> and intensity and fighting. Um, I think, surprisingly, Russians don't know anything about the fact that we were engaged simultaneously in Mm -hmm. a war across the vast Pacific. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to tell them when they disparage the U.S. contribution that, hey, we were at the same time trying to fight a war across the thousands of kilometers of ocean (laughs) in the Pacific, which required enormous logistic efforts. And Um, if I'm not mistaken, the the Soviets didn't get involved uh, against the Japanese until, what, August 1945, the same month that um, the war against Japan and the the Second World War overall ends. Yes, and they were often taught that it was because of the Soviet intervention that Japan surrendered. Yeah, don't don't mind all the island hopping or right, don't mind the, 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 the bombing, the Iwo Jimas and the Okinawas, right. mind the, the atomic bombs. Okay. It yeah. was the Soviet intervention in Manchuria. It's it's just funny how um, you know history is is taught or not taught uh, from from country to country, and and how this particular subject, the Second World War, comes across in in classrooms and kind of the popular imagination. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm curious how much you touched on a little bit, but if you could go into more detail, I'd, I'd be very interested to hear it. How much does Russia's experience in World War II influence its actions on the world stage today, as, as far as you can tell? Well, Russia is certainly a more open society today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the Russian mind, World War II was just another of the many foreign invasions that have swept across Russia down through the history. The Mongols, the Swedes, the Prussians, you know, it just goes on and on. And it reminded the Russians that the world is still a dangerous and troubled place. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know that even late in the Soviet years, there was a huge illuminated sign in Moscow that said in Russian, no one is forgotten, nothing is forgotten. Well, I think Russians understand that there is a price to war. So 
I think Russia often seeks to extend its influence in subtler, more disguised ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly you see the disinformation campaigns in Europe and in America. Uh, it's it's war by different means. Sure. <laughs> uh, they they don't want to put too much of their own skin into the game. Mm-hmm. So I do think Putin has an ambition to regain as much of the Soviet Union as he can. Mm-hmm. I'm very worried about uh, Estonia. Sure. Um, but... I just think it's unlikely that we will see Russian armies storming across Eastern Europe and Western Europe in any time in the near future. Yeah, and I know you and I have talked about this before, the the unlikelihood, um, and there is a spectrum, right? There's a spectrum of conflict, but uh, to commit significant conventional forces um, in fighting against Poland or trying to take over the rest of Ukraine and and for Western powers to not get involved in a significant way and for it to not escalate to nuclear mm-hmm. exchange is mm-hmm. hard to, it, it, it's hard to imagine. I, I know a lot of uh, defense thinkers in, in Washington and the surrounding area um, you know, still think through scenarios of, of how that would look, but you think the, the fighting, I mean, if you've got divisions fighting each other with, the type of technology and weapons available today, it, it would it would be horrifically bloody anyway. Um, yeah. You know, and just so disruptive to the economy and, and um, politics. Um, when you look at what they did in Crimea, and they just sent soldiers across with no insignia, no mm-hmm. markings, just wearing green uniforms. Right. The little green men, I think is what they Yeah, the called. little green men. And that was a classic Russian maneuver. Yeah. It caused several hours, if not days, of confusion. Who are these guys? What are they doing mm-hmm. here? And by that time, it was too late. I mean, it's there is one policy that has always been prominent in Russian military, and that's Maskirovka. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know that term. This is, yeah, please. Literally, it means masking. It means deception, camouflage, disinformation, and that has always been a central tenet of the Russian army and the Red Army. And I think it's probably of the Russian army today. That was um, a, that was something I was curious to investigate more. Um, you know, this this emphasis on surprise, deception, misdirection. Is this something that you know? was present through not just at the top levels or higher higher unit commanders but uh, you know all the way down to squads and platoons this this idea of using surprise and deception um as a means of gaining leverage uh, against the enemy and, and do you do you think that's still the case today I think it very was much the case that I mean the Russians were very good at snatch operations mm-hmm. sneaking across the front and snatching a prisoner um, I know that I think it's von Manstein describes how you might have just a few dozen Russians cross a river, but it was important to attack it right away because sure. if you waited one night, suddenly you'd find a battalion there. 
Mm-hmm. And then if you waited another night, there'd be a regiment there. <laughs> I right. mean, they were very skilled at camouflage and deception. I know that Hitler in 1944 expected the main Soviet attack to come in the south. Mm-hmm. So he shifted all the panzer divisions into Ukraine and left Central Army, Army Group Center, exposed. Because he just didn't think the main assault was going to come there. And that was, again, very much Russian deception. And, of course, the Soviets uh, launch Operation uh, Migration and just eviscerate Army Group Center, the largest German formation of the war. I think it was the large, what was it, kind of the largest um, kind of single defeat for the Germans yes. in, in World War II? It, it, was, it virtually erased Army Group Center from the map. <laughs> I mean, Which you have to give credit to the German general Modell, who was able to cobble together a front with the flotsam and jetsam <laughs> <laughs> left after the disintegration. I mean, we are talking the total disintegration of Army Group Center. Again, just before. The, the scale of scope is just, it's, it's hard to imagine, um, you know, the, the, the number of men involved in that, and the Soviet ability to... Um, move troops um, surreptitiously and without the Germans noticing too much, uh, and then launch this highly successful offensive. It's just it's just amazing. Yes, and I think it also shows how much they had learned by that time in the war. Certainly, mm-hmm. Operation Degradation is a classic example of deep operations. Mm-hmm. It was the Blitzkrieg in reverse. Mm. They were sending armored formations deep behind enemy lines, striking key communication nodes and overrunning headquarters. And, you know, it was just a classic example of Blitzkrieg, but it was against the Germans. Sure. So this is, you know, I think it's a good point to ask. You're mentioning deep operations. We're talking about some of the lesser known aspects, at least for you know, Americans, English speakers in general, of the uh, Great Patriotic War, the Eastern Front. Stuart, what what in your mind should every U.S. service member know about the Great Patriotic War and, and Russia's experience in it? I think the one thing they should always know and remember is just the impact it had on Russia, but also it should teach you to respect the Russian soldier and the Russian command. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, even in 1941, they were formidable opponents and inflicted heavy casualties and tank losses on the Germans. Even Mm -hmm. as they were fleeing in retreat, you had enough pockets of resistance where they would literally fight to the last man and already by 42, they scored the triumph at Stalingrad. And by 1944-45, they were demonstrating mastery of maneuver warfare and deep operations and using forward detachments. Uh, so they learned very rapidly. Mm-hmm. And even the German marshals and generals in their memoirs said, you always had to respect the Russian soldier. Mm-hmm. The Russian soldier showed tremendous fortitude and, and 
willingness to suffer privations. Of course, they were fighting for their homeland. Sure. Um, and they were just hard, hard fighters. Uh, the Germans hadn't encountered anything like that before. Well, didn't they, you know, you look at... Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that, you know, don't you don't you see in the opening stages of Barbarossa um, German commanders at all levels saying, we've surrounded these guys, we're pounding them with artillery, uh, we're, we're hitting them with everything we got. And, and certainly the Germans captured immense numbers of prisoners. Uh, yeah. But there were plenty of instances where um, the Russians, Soviets, um, just they would fight to the last or surprise the Germans with their tenacity, saying, these guys, they're not like the other people we fought. They, they, many of them just don't seem to quit. And the, you know, even the farther we go into their country, um, the, the, the resistance remains the same. Sure, there are routes and pursuits and lots of exploitation uh, opportunities for German panzer divisions, motorized units. But um, I'm just thinking back on my reading of, of Eastern Front history. There's there's a lot of surprise, I think, on the part of the German commanders on, um, like you said, the tenacity of, of the Russian soldier. Yes, I mean, yes, there were hundreds of thousands of prisoners taken in the pockets at Minsk and Smolensk, but the time it took to reduce those pockets, the fighting it took, mm-hmm. and even as they're reducing pockets, they're getting counterattacked from outside. There were sure. heavy counterattacks at Yelnya um, in 1941, and it was a constant drain on the German army, on the mm-hmm. Wehrmacht. They were just losing men they could not replace, and they were losing tanks they could not replace. So I think David Stahill has made this argument very effectively mm, that yeah. Barbarossa was breaking down already by July, <laughs> 1941. Just a month later, right? Yeah, just a month later. Yeah. And so I do not think any soldier, U.S. soldier, should uh, diminish what the Russian army is capable of doing. Mm-hmm. I think that would be a terrible mistake. Sure. So along those lines, Stuart, if you're a young Marine, young soldier, and, and um, you know, you want to start studying the Great Patriotic War of the Eastern Front, uh, what advice could you give them on, on where to get started? Which authors or works uh, do you think they should have at the top of their list? Well, I think a very nice entry point into the Eastern Front would be the various Osprey titles. Mm-hmm. They tend to be small and paperback and not very expensive. And if you have... Um, Kindle, then you can allow uh, download the electronic version, which makes it somewhat cheaper. Sure. And there are titles in their series. The the Fortress series has a title, Demyansk, 1942. Mm-hmm. They have a book, uh, Smolensk, 1943. They have one, Moscow, 1941. In their dual series, they have like BT-7 against the Panzerkampfwagen 38T, mm-hmm. the T-34 against their Sturmgeschutz. So certainly that's a nice entry point, I think. If they're looking for a good single-volume treatment of the entire war, I would recommend Glanson House's book, When Titans Clashed. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I think that was University Press of Kansas. Yeah, I think that's right. Yes. I don't remember. When Titans Clash, yes, University Press of Kansas. It's on my library shelf. I'm trying to see when it came out. But it's a very good introductory volume into the fighting on these ones. 1995. Okay. And I think he's. I think he updated it not too long ago. I want to say uh, there was a revised edition um, released in just the last few years. Could well be. Yeah. And certainly if they want to take a deeper dive, there is Glance's Colossus Reborn, which mm-hmm. is a deep look into the Red Army in 1941 and 1943. Um, and then, of course, there's John Erickson's two-volume set, Road to Stalingrad and Road to Berlin. Mm-hmm. It kind of was the, <laughs> the keystone work on the Eastern Front. Sure. Um, so I recommend those books. I mean, turning to my own, I would say among my memoirs, Josef Pilyushin, Red Sniper on the Eastern Front, reveals some of the human tragedy of the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Meekin's Guns Against the Reich is a very candid look into the Red Army and how it operated. It's a refreshingly honest book. And he had some remarkable experiences during the war. Mm. Um For tankers, I think Vasily Krysos, Panzer Destroyer, he served as a commander in turn of a heavy tank, a self-propelled gun, a tank destroyer, and a T-3485 from Stalingrad to Königsberg. Wow. I know that the British Army is currently using that book to prepare for a battlefield ride to Kiev, and in classroom instruction they're using that book. Oh, that's fascinating. And then I think Boris Kowalerski's book, uh, The Tanks of Operation Barbarossa, that is a different book because first he looks at the design challenges and the strengths and weaknesses of the German and Soviet tanks of 1941. Mm-hmm. And he uses technical documents to talk about their manufacture and construction. But then he talks at the end about how they were used in 1941. And he uses an illustrative battle Mm -hmm. uh, to show how the two sides employed these tanks. It's been well received by customers on Amazon. It's gotten some very positive reviews. That's fantastic. All great recommendations, and we'll encourage our our listeners to check them out. Stuart, do you see the Eastern Front as a good source of inspiration for tactical decision games, decision-forcing cases, war games? Um, And and if so, might you have any ideas for scenarios in mind, especially for, let's say, small unit actions? I think there's still a lot we don't know about small unit actions on the Eastern Front, Mm -hmm. primarily because they couldn't keep diaries during the war, the Red Army. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And a junior commander didn't live for very long on the East. Yeah. Yeah. There's perhaps an apocryphal story about uh, Konyev in Berlin holding a review of the victorious troops. And during his speech, he thanked all those men who had fought all the way from the gates of Moscow all the way to Berlin. And he asked those men to step forward or raise their hand. And only one person did. Gosh. 
I mean, the, the, the casualty rate was just shocking. Um, but, you know, I know you've used Kobolonsky's memoir for sure. a case study. I know that the British Army is using Kreisel's Panzer Destroyer mm-hmm. uh, for several studies, uh, for uh, several scenarios for small unit armored actions. Mm. Um, you know, turning to tactical games, I know that there is a couple of games out called Advanced Squad Leader and Heroes of the Motherland, Mm -hmm. which attempt to capture the flavor of the fighting on the Eastern Front, and they're squad-level games. And they both make some effort to address the fog of war and Mm -hmm. the fact that your squads may not always do what you want them to do. Sure. (laughs) Uh, So I think they're very good games to explore certain situations that were typical for the Eastern Front, like storming a building or attacking a bunker complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, they certainly have scenarios there that are worth studying and looking at. I know that ASL, Advanced Squad Leader, actually has written vignettes that give the scene of the action and describe what was happening that day in the war uh, and what this game, this scenario, is attempting to represent. Oh, wow. So it's notable for that purpose. No, um, those are great recommendations. I know Advanced Squad Leader is an enormously complicated game. The rule book is very <laughs> detailed. But they've come out with something called Starter Kits, which give you bite-sized rules to play Advanced Squad Leader. And I know the second scenario in Starter Kit 1 is called War of the Rats, which looks at city fighting in Stalingrad. Mm-hmm. And so you're commanding your squads and lieutenants and sergeants as they fight through buildings and across avenues. Yeah, um, that's I great think, stuff. Yeah, I think that game is particularly strong in narrative. Mm-hmm. You have a certain squad that will survive withering enemy fire sure. and, and place a demo charge successfully. Or you'll have a leader who will rally a broken squad and then lead it into a successful close assault as mm-hmm. it emerge. So it's very strong in narrative. I think anybody who's more interested in tanks, there's a game called Panzer put out by GMT. Mm-hmm. And the first game is Eastern Front Armored Action. Oh. The basic version is a beer and pretzel game just for fun <laughs> on sure. a Saturday afternoon. But the advanced game, is a very serious look at the differences in command and control and its effect on armored combat. That's interesting. And, of course, you know, the the Soviet approach to command and control is, I think, quite different than the German one, um, where, correct me if I'm wrong, Stuart, Germans are encouraging, generally speaking, encouraging uh, subordinate initiative. If you see an opportunity, seize on that. Um, and, and that did happen in the Soviet Army, but I think to a much lesser degree, right? There was more focus on receiving orders from, from on high and... It was uh, definitely top-down. It was top definitely yeah. top-down army. Not totally. I mean, there were cases where a young commander who kind of took hold of the horns on his own, and as long as he did so successfully, he was rewarded. Sure. 
But, yes, it was very much a top-down force, and they didn't have anything like the Germans had, the so-called mission tactics, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where you were given a mission, and then it was up to you how to achieve it. The Russians instead would come up with very detailed plans, and you had to execute your role in that plan. Not not well known for flexibility, I I think is fair to say. No, not not at all. I mean, the Germans said they tended to attack over the same ground time and time and time again. Mm. But that's certainly in 1941 and 42. Yeah. So, Stuart, I know we're we're nearing uh, the end of our time together. I wanted to pivot uh, for the last few questions to wargaming. So you've given us some suggestions uh, for for war games on, on the Eastern Front, but I've, I've always known you as a, as a war gamer, and I'd just be curious to, to pick your brain about that. You know, How did you get into war gaming, and how, if at all, has it influenced your, your understanding of history? Well, I think I got into war gaming at a very early age. I think my mother gave me the old Milton Bradley game, Battle Cry, which was kind okay. of a simplistic game of the American Civil War. Sure. And later I got the game Dogfight as a gift, had little plastic airplanes that dueled on a map. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I drifted away from them until a few years later when I was in maybe the ninth or 10th grade, I found the Avalon Hill game Africa Corps in a five and dime store. Mm. And I bought it for like two bucks because it was already opened. <laughs> right. I ran home and I was astonished to see that there were serious war games out there. And they've taught me a lot about the geography of war, but they've also given me insights into the problems of logistics and weather and maneuver. And as uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest said, getting there firstest with the mostest. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But as I play the games, I think I also get an enormous amount of respect for the fighting men and commanders as I, you know, vicariously experienced the beach landings, the jungle fighting, and the costly assaults, sure. I, I, I just, I, I take off my cap to them. Has your, you know, has your um, wargaming influenced your work as a translator or editor? You know, have you ever found yourself wargaming a scenario that uh, you're also doing some translation work, you know, or, or your translation work refers to or involves in, you know, that, that scenario campaign. I think that's often the case that as I start to translate uh, the opening week of Case Blue, I'll open up a game where I can game that situation out. Sure. And I can compare what's happening in my game to what happened in history. Sure. It often motivates me, yes, to pull out a game. I have another game on called uh, The Battles for Moscow, which has two different maps on the road to Moscow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I was tra- uh, creating, uh, tra- translating Lapuchowski's book, I got that game out and set it up. Wow. So, yes, it often motivates me in that way. <laughs> so what do you think, then, of, of wargaming as a training and educational tool for military leaders? Well, I know that it's been used for decades to assess plans, Uh, but I think it's a valuable tool for military leaders because it compels decision-making, often with limited information. Mm. And I think short of 
maneuvers and actual fighting, it is really the best way for a junior officer to learn the craft and techniques of warfare. Um, I know that several of the war games were designed by former U.S. Army officers, mm-hmm. um, and it imparts their views regarding maneuver warfare. I know Dean Essig had a series of games called the Operational Combat Series, oh, yeah. which distills his thoughts on maneuver warfare. Mm-hmm. And it plays out in a number of theaters of World War II. Uh, I have a couple of his games. Uh, there is a real fan base around those games. Sure, sure. Um, I know that some of the popular wargaming channels on YouTube are by former U.S. Army and Marine veterans, mm-hmm. such as the Gimpy Gamer. He was yeah. a Marine veteran. I was just, it's funny you say that, you know, I was just talking to someone the other day um, who was talking about, he was talking about tactical decision games and, and um, that, Besides the the opportunity to test your decision making, to issue orders, to um, think critically, that for veterans, you know, people who have gotten out, um, and particularly I think people who have PTSD from combat, um, they can be of great therapeutic value. That's and interesting. I've, I've, yeah, I think that's always been. I've heard this from a bunch of people, but I've never seen it really investigated that um, you can, you know, as, as someone suffering from post-traumatic stress uh, through gaming, you can, um, you can, I guess, to a degree, relive some of those situations or let's say you weren't there for that particular, you know, you, you're playing the battle, the second battle of Fallujah, but you never served in Fallujah. You were in Najaf or Baghdad or someplace mm-hmm. else, mm-hmm. but that just the action of moving squads that look very similar in organization to the squad that you had when you were in Iraq or uh, responding to IEDs, uh, to an IED strike on on the board um, and uh, thinking on your feet, that there's actually a lot of therapeutic value there. And it's just mm-hmm. something I, I'd really like to see investigated at some point. Uh, I know but, the Gimpy Gamer actually suffered a combat wound. That's why he's called the Gimpy Gamer. Mm. And I know that when he first started his channel, I think he didn't realize that he was also joining a community. Sure. And it's, you know, they have these conventions where these gamers can meet. And he went to his first convention and he was welcomed by everybody. He just yeah. had such a wonderful experience at that convention. And he thought that it was such a warm group of mostly men, there are women involved, sure. mostly men, and he felt like he was part of this larger community. I think it meant a lot to him. Yeah, which is, and, and I've, I think that's another aspect of wargaming that we tend to miss is the, the community aspect. Um, it It's becoming more and more popular, and I think games in general, they're, they're everywhere in society, right? People are playing games on their phones, their tablets, of mm-hmm. course, game consoles, computers. Um, there's so many games around, but I think in particular with the wargaming community, which is still very niche, um, there, there does seem to be, I, I think, a strong sense of community, and um, it's, it's wonderful to hear the, the Gimpy Gamer have had that uh, reception, but I'm not surprised. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, a, so a final question about wargaming, Stuart, and that's, have you 
heard anything or, or kept tabs at all on the, this kind of latest wave of interest and, and support for wargaming in the Department of Defense? You know, do you, and, and if so, do you have any thoughts on it? I haven't heard much. I know that, for example, you sent me the uh, uh, recording of the Zinni. Yeah, another uh, podcast. People talked about it. Mm-hmm. And so I have some vague notions of what's going on. I tend to stay so immersed in my translation. Sure. I don't get up and smell the, the coffee and see the broader world. Right. Um, but I have heard things about it. I do think it's a very positive development. Sure. Um, you know, I think gaming can force, you know, especially junior officers to think in terms of time and space. Mm. And it allows them to experiment with different tactics and ideas in a given situation. Um, you know, one of the bitter comments by Red Army troops prior to 1943 was that their commander, commanders were learning at the cost of their blood. Mm-hmm. They were getting better, but the human cost was appalling. And you wonder how much that could have been avoided if they had done some proper gaming. <laughs> Yeah, I'll paraphrase it, but I I think uh, Eric Walters, retired uh, Marine colonel who we had earlier on the show, um, I forget who said it, maybe it was a British general, um, but that, uh, and maybe it was World War I, uh, you know, it, it, you know, how many, it takes about 10,000, you know, casualties to educate a a general or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And just, I'm sure for the Soviets, uh, for, for the Russians, um, that was something they experienced again and again and again. I mean, uh, I've that, seen that comment so many times in the books I've tran- translated. The commanders were learning at the cost of their blood. Yeah. Uh, it just repeats itself time and time again. It's, again, just uh, amazing, the, the scale and, and um, just you know, the absolute... If it could be helpful, there is a very interesting video on YouTube entitled The War Gamers Who Won a Real War. Oh. It's by a popular guy. I think he has close to a million subscribers. Mm-hmm. He talks about history named Lindy Beige. And he discusses wargaming done by a unit called the Watu, the Western Approaches Tactical uh, Unit. Yes, yes. And it employed RINs, women, who were highly skilled in math and calculation but knew nothing about naval warfare. And they wargamed the Battle of the Atlantic and how to best protect the convoys and how to counter German U-boat tactics. Mm-hmm. And it actually worked. I mean, he shows charts. And after its first success, it began to be used in real time. This is what is so incredible. He said yeah. that you know a certain battle for a convoy might run on for several days. And on the first day, they would start broadcasting the new German tactics they were seeing to the Watu, (laughs) and they would begin to game it out. What was the way to counter this? There's a story that the admiral in charge of the Western Approaches Tactical Unit was initially very skeptical. What are these people doing down there in that room, and what are all these Mm -hmm. friends, the women, (laughs) of the force doing here? And they told them that it was working, that they were actually countering German U-boat tactics and scoring successes. Wow. And he came to He was a old Sea Dog veteran of World War One, 
bedecked with medals. And he said, well, let me take control of the submarine. And so he started playing as the submarine U-boat commander. And after a few minutes, they tapped him on the shoulder and said his submarine had been depth charged. <laughs> wow. And he said, well, let's try it again. And it happened again. And he said, let's do it again. Five times, Wendy wow. says, his U-boat was sunk. And he said, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. Let's get him out to the fleet right away. I want to meet him. Let me meet this guy. Yeah. <laughs> and his actual opponent had been an 18-year-old woman named Jenny O'Neill, I think was her name. <laughs> wow. And, of course, the humiliation the commander must have felt to see an 18-year-old girl had outfoxed him time and time again. But to his credit, he said, flash these countermeasures out to the Navy immediately. Wow. So they were actually making a contribution in real time, sure. and they were wargaming. <laughs> they were wargaming. They were using brown chalk for the German submarines that could be plotted and moved without the escort commander seeing it because they had a special filter over their screen that wouldn't let them see brown. Mm -hmm. and they were working out ways how best to counter. Um, you know, he offers an example of the tactic they'd found, that they were on one patrol and they saw this German U-boat way, way, way off in the distance. And they didn't know what it was doing out there. Was it having engine trouble? I mean, it was too far to be any threat, but what do they do? And then before they knew it, they were set upon by a dozen submarines. And torpedoes were running everywhere. Wow. This happened on a couple of times, and they think, okay, this submarine way out there, there has to be something to this because we're seeing this sub out there. And they figured out that the first sub that found the convoy stopped and became a coordinator to assemble mm -hmm. the wolf pack and coordinate the wolf pack attacks. Mm -hmm. They said, well, how do we deal with this? And they found that if they just charged straight out after it, it never worked. If they put their lights on it and started firing on it, it would just sink and slip away, submerge and slip away, not sink, mm -hmm. and then pop up somewhere else and do the same thing. And what the ladies found was that if the convoy and escorts took a very gradual course in the direction of that one sub, they could get close enough to it that an escort could suddenly peel off and attack the sub. Mm. And because it had just submerged, it hadn't gotten very far away, right. and the first depth charge worked. Wow. It was success. <laughs> but again, it was the Watu ladies who found this tactic. Yeah, I, I heard about this, I think, earlier this year. Um, I'm, I'm searching. I think the book is called A Game of Birds and Wolves, The Ingenious Young Women Whose Secret Board Game Helped Win World War II by Simon Parkin. Uh, Interesting. I, yeah, I think that's where... Um, a lot of this is um, kind of the, the in that book because it's a very fascinating story. Yeah, just and, I, and I'll definitely I'll check out this YouTube video. It sounds sounds really neat. Um, really no, the war gamers who won a real war. 
Yeah, that's no, that's really fantastic stuff. I'll, I'll be sure to check it out. When we talk about gaming, I think it is there is a cautionary story that sure a game a war game is only as good as its rule set and umpire. <laughs> mm-hmm. There is a story that prior to Midway, the Japanese gamed the operation in early May. Sure. And the American side reportedly won the game, and the Japanese side protested that the American carriers, American carriers sooner than was possible and the outcome was overruled and they this time forced the American carriers to stay in port for a longer time wow. the Japanese won the second battle yep. <laughs> but of course but it, the American side did deploy sooner than the Japanese anticipated and they were able to ambush the Japanese carriers right so yeah, they're all <laughs> Yeah, all sorts of things that we have to be. And a good rule, and it can be worthless. Yeah, and there's got to be honesty and ethic transparency and kind of other things in place to prevent the uh, to prevent the exercise from just confirming your biases and and, uh, not challenging you. Absolutely. Well, Stuart, we are we are at the end of our of our really fascinating chat. Uh, would you like to share any parting thoughts or, or shots with our listeners? I am just dismayed, I think, by the general lack of interest in history and military mm-hmm. history in the United States. Sure. And so I would urge the listeners to do whatever they can to promote the study of history in this country. There's that famous saying that those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. Mm-hmm. And I certainly think we are seeing that. Yes. <laughs> so I, I really do think that more must be done to make Americans more interested and informed about history. I, I couldn't, couldn't agree more, my friend. And thank you so much. Uh, I enjoyed our, our chat immensely. I think our, our audience you. did too. Uh, you're doing amazing essential work. Uh, and I think present and future generations of, of, uh, U.S. warfighters have a lot and will have a lot to thank you for. So thank you again. And uh, I'd love to have you back. Maybe we could, um, you know, go through uh, one of your uh, books kind of in more, in more depth and kind of let, uh, let our listeners know uh, more about the Soviet experience in World War II. I'd be happy to do so. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Stuart, and we'll be in touch. All right. Good luck with your podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.